for those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyrus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I, I made a mistake last week by telling exactly what I don't like after I told the youth that they could dress me on one Sunday if they raise a certain amount. I didn't think they would do it, which is why I agreed. So I do want to say this, wait to go youth. Hey, we, we, uh, we stop at nothing to reach the loss. That's one of our core values. If this is not evidence enough, I don't know what is, okay? Let's get through this. I asked, I asked Pastor Enos, I was gonna do the uh, communion today, and I said, you know, I, I just feel a little sacrilegious doing this. Can you, uh, can you do it? Uh, maybe we don't need to live stream this part. <laughs> but I got, I got a good word, uh-oh. There we go, computer's shutting down. No, it's not. I'm not gonna be embarrassed. We, we do have a good word, even though you got a pastor wearing a weird outfit. We have a excellent word for you today. If you can just try to focus on God's word, that's what we're doing here today. Man, this is gonna be difficult, Dinos. <laughs> I'm gonna get you back. <laughs> I'm gonna get you back. But uh, we just want you to take your focus off of me today and onto the word. We love God's word here at New Heights. We love missions, is why I dress like this. So if you're brand new here, I apologize. I don't know what else to say, but besides we love missions here. And so we support world missionaries. I think we support over 70 Assemblies of God world missionaries doing work overseas. And a part of that, one of our programs in the Assemblies of God is Speed the Light. So that's what our kids gave to. Speed the Light is something the youth do. They raise money and they buy missionaries' vehicles. And so they buy different ministries' vehicles. And so when Liz and I were missionaries for 10 years, we had a Speed the Light vehicle. And because of that Speed the Light vehicle, we were able to go to crazy places and bring the gospel where it did not exist. So youth, you guys did a phenomenal job raising money for Speed the Light. And your pastor's proud of you. And that's why I'm willing to do this today. You guys rocked. And I'm proud of you. All right, so we're in the book of Acts today. We're in chapter 11. We're looking at verse 19 through 30. And the title of the sermon today is A Church Worth Following. And if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, open up. Like I said, Acts 11, looking at verses 19 through 30. Now, in today's text, it's the first time the word Christian's used in the New Testament. It's kind of crazy to think about that. The word Christian only occurs two other times in all of the New Testament. It occurs in Acts 8.26, verse 28. Um, and Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And then it's used a third and final time in 1 Peter 4.16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. It was never a term that was used in the earlier years by Christians themselves, as far as I know from my studies. The Christians called themselves other things. They called themselves disciples, believers, saints, 
uh, followers of the way, uh, but not Christians. It was a word that was used by others outside the circle of Christianity. It was used by onlookers. It was a title of contempt. It was used in mockery and disdain. It literally means belonging to Christ, and the Lord has, the Lord has a way of taking a word that's used in mockery and turns it into this incredible compliment. So throughout the years, it has become uh, a much better name for us, I think. It wasn't, it's not used so much in mockery for those of us who belong to Jesus and who are trying to follow him in our life. And I think it's safe to say that right now in contemporary culture, the word Christian, it, it's lost a great deal of its meaning. And in many ways, it's become a name of, and in some ways, not many ways, but some ways it's become a name of mockery again, right? When you're hearing, oh, those Christians, it's not necessarily a good thing. But it's lost a great deal of its meaning as well. Uh, and I, I, that's why in a lot of my sermons, you won't hear me use the word Christian, actually. You'll hear me use the word follower, or the title follower of Christ. And when I was a missionary in Thailand, I never said Christian because it was confusing to people. Because when I said, are you a Christian, most Indians or most Thais thought I was saying, are you a Westerner? Because they just associated Christian uh, with anything from the West. So it's Christian to, you know, Britney Spears is Christian or, or Madonna's Christian. And so anything in the West was Christian and I chose to use the term a follower of Jesus instead. Um, but it's, it's just, it's made me think a whole lot about this word, especially this week. And I, I remember this story, I heard a preacher, he, he said this in one of his sermons, if you were accused, in fact, I think it's up on, up on uh, the screen here, nope, the big screen, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Now we're talking about the word Christian the way it was used in the New Testament. I'm not talking about someone who, well, they're religious and they go to church on Sunday and they They'll, they won't miss any event at the church. They're there all the time. I'm, I'm asking you if, if you were accused of being a Christian the way that the New Testament viewed the word, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Now, these believers, these disciples who were first called Christians, in a, in, they were first called Christians in a place called Antioch, and, uh, and notice it's used here in the plural, Christians, not Christians, so that calling this group of them Christians, they were definitely followers of Jesus. It's not used of an individual Christian. It's used of a group of Christians. It's used of a church. It's used of a group of believers who came to know Christ as their Savior, and they came to know Christ in Antioch. Man, I am struggling with this outfit. I'm just gonna be really honest with you. Today is gonna be a long Sunday for me. It's saying here that the church of believers in Antioch were first called Christians. They were called Christians by those who looked around and saw what they were doing, tried to figure out what's going on with this group of people. A great need of every city, by the way, is to have a church that's a Christian church. It's the great need of every city, not just in title, but also in truth. A church that is Christian, that is, that is salt preserving the city from corruption, that's what the church is called to do. Church that's Christian, that's light, bringing uh, this incredible light that shines out of the darkness when Jesus comes. I wonder if we can call ourselves a Christian church. I wonder if, if that title would appropriately fit us here at New Heights Church. Uh, I mean, we're an AG church, we're an Assemblies of God church, uh, but first and foremost, we are a Christian church. What do you see in a fellowship of people when you call that fellowship Christian? And that's what we're gonna look at, look at today. And, and the big takeaway from this whole section, here it is in a four-word statement, the gospel requires engagement, okay? If you're taking notes, write that down. The gospel requires engagement. It's not something that you, you can avoid. You have to be engaged with the lost around you. The church at Antioch was serious about evangelism. They were also serious about discipleship and serious about ministry, and we're gonna, we're gonna look at those three elements of the church today. So look with me at verse 22, because we're gonna see a church that evangelizes, okay? Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed 
turn to the Lord. So this, this church was started by those who had been scattered by the persecution. That's the first thing I want you to notice. Okay, remember the persecution? We talked about that already uh, with the connection to Stephen. Stephen was stoned, he was martyred, and then persecution broke out. And if you flip back and you looked at Acts 8, because you, you'd see how this all came about, but here's the deal about chapter 8. When you get to the end of chapter 7, the gospel's pretty much stuck in Jerusalem. And that means that the gospel is pretty much only being preached to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. But it hasn't really gone beyond Jerusalem at that point. But then Stephen's stoned, and I mean they threw rocks at him, okay? <laughs> I was a youth pastor. I preached on this message, and half of the youth were confused. They didn't understand how Stephen could be stoned. I was so confused by the conversation until Liz finally said, Justin, they think you said Stephen was using drugs. Could not believe it, but I was a youth pastor, so let me just make the clarification. Stephen was stoned, and I mean rocks being thrown at him until he dies. And when he's stoned at the end of chapter 7, look what happens. In fact, I want you to read it with me. Chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I love God's word. What we often do so many times is we'll read right through these amazing stories. We'll sometimes fail to recognize the power behind these stories. I love this. Satan's attempt to stop the church through the stoning of Stephen only served to advance the church to the ends of the earth. God is sovereign, and he even uses the suffering of his people for the advancement, okay? In fact, this is what propels the church into Judea and Samaria, which Jesus has said in Acts 1-8, where they were supposed to go. Jesus told them, right? From Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, by the power of the Holy Spirit in them. So we're seeing God's mission basically unfold here. If there was ever a city that needed God, it was the city of Antioch. I love when I hear people today say, man, America is just so lost. I'll, I'll be the first to say it sure is. I mean, every time we have a different cycle of elections and America's getting what they ask for. I'll just say that. And, and the scary thing about it is the Bible said, I mean, we, we're, we can make our own choices and America's making their own choices, okay? We see it throughout elections. America continues to uh, make decisions that... Uh, draw them further away from God's word. And the scary thing is we see the evidence in the Bible. We know where this goes and what happens. When we do that, God does what? His presence is pulled from us. So America's gonna get what they ask. But here's what I'll tell you. America ain't any worse than some of these ancient cities. <laughs> these Christians had to learn to live in these ancient cities. Guess what, brother and sister? We're gonna make it. No matter how bad America gets, no matter how immoral they get, no matter how far they run from God, you and I are gonna make it. We're gonna make it, okay? <laughs> I'm telling you, if there was ever a city that needed God, it was the city of Antioch. So thanks to historical records, we know several things about the ancient city. It was about 300 miles north of the city of Jerusalem. It was the capital of Syria. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. And it was a city that had about 500 to 8,000 in population. It was a city known for its immorality, okay? Five miles outside the city was the Temple of Daphne that was, was serviced by ritual prostitutes. So the city of Antioch had become known for its immorality and its sin. Antioch, the golden, had become quite tarnished in its morality. Queen of the East had prostituted itself in its lifestyle. This city was lost. It was a city of sports gone mad. It was a city of chariot racing, a city of gambling. It was pretty much the Las Vegas, if you please, of the ancient world. And if there was ever a city that needed God in it, it was the city of Antioch. They desperately needed God. Now, I want to tell you something today. Cincinnati needs God. Man, we're a wonderful city. I love this city. I thank God for letting me live in this city. But it's a city that desperately needs God. And what we learn from the book of Acts is that we exist in the context of mission. Our church, New Heights Church, we exist in the context of mission. All right? 
So we know, we know that Cincinnati needs Jesus. We're a church in Cincinnati, and we exist in the context of mission. Are you getting this? God wants to use New Heights Church to transform Cincinnati. God wants to use this church to transform Cincinnati. I just got done talking to our Spanish fellowship, and I was telling them how we're gonna start making changes, and we're gonna start integrating our different fellowships. Why? Because that's one way we're gonna preach to the community. The community's trying to figure all this stuff out. How politicians are trying to figure out how can we bring unity, how can we bring unity in, in all this racial divide. They can't do it without the power of the Holy Spirit. But we can, we have the Holy Spirit. We exist, New Heights Church exists in the context of mission. So just like the church in Antioch existed in the context of mission, so do we. God's still fulfilling his purpose and his mission and we're a part of it. That gets me excited. I don't know about you, but I get excited. All right? So we know Antioch, it was a big city. Over half a million people living within its boundaries. And because it was a central hub for trade and commerce between Europe and Asia, it had this almost electric mix of culture and ethnicity and religions. In fact, by the time that Luke is writing this, listen to this, there's some 18 different ethnic groups living within the city. It's incredibly diverse. And somewhere along the line in Antioch's history, walls were built up to fence off these different groups from each other. Did you just hear what I said? They built walls to fence off the different groups from each other. It's literally a city divided from the startup where the Jews had their quarters, the Greeks had theirs, the Syrians theirs, and the Romans theirs. Now, I don't know why they did this. Maybe it was to keep peace. Maybe, maybe it was to preserve culture. I, I don't know. I'm not really sure why they built, built it up in a grid with walls like this, but we know from history that Antioch had this reputation of being a wicked, wicked city, incredibly corrupt, incredibly immoral, second only probably to the city of Corinth. It was just a wicked city. Even with the walls uh, that, that they had segregating everybody. It still was just the whole city was evil. And here's what I, I thought. I couldn't help but think of it. As studying this, reading this book, I was sitting in a deer stand, by the way, hunting. I know I don't look like a hunter today, but I was. Didn't see anything. Didn't get any, any action whatsoever. So all of those animal lovers who are praying that Pastor Justin didn't get one, shame on you. <laughs> But I was sitting there thinking, man, some things just never change. City built walls. Now we might not have walls in America literally built up to segregate different people groups, but we've built our own walls, haven't we? Culturally, I mean, we, I told, I told the Spanish fellowship today, I, I think, do you know when, when America's the most segregated? Sunday morning. Sunday morning, usually between eight and noon. It's when America's the most segregated. And it's just fascinating to me that the Holy Spirit is falling on all these different people groups. And even in a city where there's walls that segregate people, they're coming together for church. Why? Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He breaks down those walls. You want evidence of the Holy Spirit? It's a church that has no walls. It's a church that has no walls. I love it. Acts tells us that this church, the gospel, it flourished in this environment. And we would, we would have thought probably had the opposite effect, but instead it flourished. Why? And I encourage you to write this down if you're taking notes, because gospel fluency is a relational game changer. Gospel fluency is a relational game changer. Why did the gospel spread like a wildfire in a wicked city like Antioch? Because these men were doing something very different. We don't know a lot about these men. In fact, we don't even know their names, but we, we do know that they spoke the good news about the Lord. The Greek word for speak that's used here in verse 19 and verse 20 is the word that's used for normal conversation, meaning that they weren't preaching when they went to Antioch. It means that the Holy Spirit came upon them in normal conversations. Do you know the Holy Spirit wants to do that with you? Do you know that the Holy Spirit wants to come upon you when you walk into a grocery store and you see somebody fidgeting for money and every card they're using is denied and denied and denied and the Holy Spirit wants to come upon you at that very moment and he wants to use you to share the gospel with that person? Did you know the Holy Spirit can give you opportunities like that? You don't have to be a preacher. I say it all the time, the best ministry in this church is gonna be outside these doors, not here on a Sunday morning. 
Man, I love being a pastor. I do. I love it. I get to teach God's word every single week and nothing gets me more excited. But you know what? Sometimes I envy you guys because you guys get to go out and you get to work amongst non-believers. When my dad went from being a police officer and a lawyer to a pastor, he used to always say, sometimes I miss being a police officer because I miss getting to share Jesus with lost people. And I would always tell him, Dad, it's not really fair because you would handcuff them and put them in the back of your car. They had nowhere to go. They had to listen to you. <laughs> he led so many people to Jesus as a police officer. The Holy Spirit wants to come upon you and use you to minister. They were experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit in, in their normal, everyday interaction with people. They were just talking about the gospel as they went. This is the picture of the gospel conversations that we talk about here at, uh, at uh, New Heights. And that's gospel fluency. Being able to articulate the gospel as you're just going about everyday life. That's what these men were doing. And these men, they were just being faithful to Jesus. They had no plan, they had no program, they had no ministry budget, right? <laughs> Just being faithful. They just had this overwhelming zeal for the Lord. Verse 21 tells us that the Lord's hand was with them and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The church of Antioch got started because so-called nobodies witnessed to their neighbors. It's, it literally, it was birth from effective evangelism. I don't wanna see this church grow because of programs. I want to offer great programs, don't get me wrong. I want parents to come here and I want them to go out bragging about how incredible New Heights kids programs are and we do have some of the best programs for your kids. Man, from Impact to Rangers to JBQ, we've got everything for your kids. We want to help you in the discipleship process. Get your kids involved. Rangers and Impact meet every Sunday morning at nine. JBQ meets every single Wednesday. We've got a phenomenal youth group. We want to partner with you in seeing your kids discipled. But, but here's the truth. I don't want to grow that way. I want to grow because every single person who calls Jesus their Lord and Savior and attends New Heights Church is empowered by the Holy Spirit, going out and living on mission every single day. Man, I want to start meeting Starbucks baristas who came here because so-and-so witnessed to them. I want to start meeting hairdressers who said, man, so-and-so just kept witnessing to me over and over and over until finally the Holy Spirit got a hold of my heart. That's what I want to see. That's how we're going to grow. That's how the church grows in the New Testament. Man, it's still the way things are done. Where we speak the good news about Jesus in everyday life. The church at Antioch changed. They changed the game of evangelism. Okay, They showed us today how to be involved with people who are far from God in their sin who have different cultures from ours, who have different religious beliefs than we do, and we're to learn to live faithfully and graciously and wisely among them as we just go about speaking the gospel to them in normal conversation. At the end of this service, I want you to pray that God would use you in normal day, everyday conversation to present the gospel to somebody. You get excited about that? I do. <laughs> Isaiah does. All right, then we get to verse 22 through 25. We see a church at Disciples. Read with me. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, just pause for a minute, because you have, you have a new church, and guess what a new church needs? A new church needs new leadership, right? A church, they've got to have leadership, and so they sent someone, but not just anybody. They sent their best. Do you notice this? I've often thought that this is interesting because many times the church today, when it comes to multiplication or when it comes to sending out missionaries or church planters, sometimes we don't like to send our best. But the church in Jerusalem sent their best. They sent Barnabas, son of encouragement. He was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and God used him in a wonderful, wonderful way to encourage this new congregation of Gentile believers. But I want you to just have this seed in your mind. Because I think a lot of you guys are, you, if you looked around today and you saw some empty seats and you thought, well, we need to pack this place out, well, I might challenge you in the near future here because I think we need to be a church that multiplies. I don't think we have to wait to get a certain size to do that. And I think we should be a church that multiplies and sends our best. Wow, that was quiet. <laughs> it's all right, it's just a seed for now, okay? <laughs> all right, moving on, verse 23. Verse 24, well, 
we're missing verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So, you know, verse 24, it gives us a little spiritual profile of Barnabas. And from what we read here and what we know about him throughout Scripture, he's the kind of Christian that you would point somebody to and say, hey, go be like him. Go be like this guy. You want somebody to copy. You want somebody to become. Be like Barnabas. We're told he was a good man. Now, good doesn't mean not bad here. Good means that he was righteous, that he was obedient to God's word so consistently that his character was blameless. It's a pretty amazing description of somebody. We're also told in verse 24 that he was full of the Holy Spirit and he was full of faith. So the focus here isn't his skills. It's not his gifts. It's not his talents. It's not his resources. I'm sure he had all of that. But that's not the focus here. Like many of us, we're all gifted. We're all talented in certain ways. The focus of the text isn't on those things. Instead, it's focused more on his incredible faith that he had in the Lord. And it's because of that faith that the Lord fills him with his spirit to go and to do good things. And we, we get to see Barnabas' faith in action here and how he encourages those new believers when he gets to Antioch. We're called to be encouragers, by the way, not discouragers. Being, being somebody who uh, is always discouraging, that's not a spiritual gift. I know there's a lot of people who think it is, but it's, it, it, it's not. Being the one who always criticizes, I'm just speaking the truth. Well, it's not a spiritual gift always, okay? We're called to be encouragers. Encouragers. The Bible tells us that he rejoiced at what he saw when he arrived because, get this, he saw worshiping he saw Jews worshiping with Gentiles. For him, that was an entirely new experience. Entirely new experience. It was a game-changer moment for him to experience church with Gentiles. And yet, he was open to what the Lord was doing. He wasn't critical of what he saw. Instead, what, what we see is that he was committed to helping these new believers grow in their faith. He didn't, he didn't get here and begin to criticize the structure of the church or the way that we were, they were doing things or even the spiritual immaturity of the Gentiles, he got there and he was excited. He was excited. He was genuinely excited to see new converts. And so he got there and just said, how can I help? How can I be a part of this? I want to be a part of this. I want to offer my gifts. I want to offer my time. I want to offer my resources. How can I help? And he was committed to teach and to encourage them and what it means to remain in the Lord, what it means to be faithful. I love Barnabas. I pray that our church is full of Barnabases. Now, as your pastor and as your leader, I gotta tell you something that might come as a surprise to you. I know all the weak areas in our church. <laughs> pastor, knows, I, I know that. I know when we've messed up. I know when we're not doing something well. And sometimes... Instead of somebody coming in and stating the obvious, sometimes I just wish and I pray I would get a Barnabas, somebody who would come in and instead of saying, hey, we're doing this and it's so jacked up and so messed up, you gotta fix this, you gotta do this, they'd come in and say, hey, I wanna help in this area. <laughs> hey, I wanna help in this area. Because I'm telling you, yeah, clap for that. That's worth clapping for. <laughs> Woo, gotta be careful. You're gonna see a lot of areas where we need help and we need improvement, but I'm telling you, if you're seeing the area, maybe God's tugging at your heart to get involved. If you're saying, man, we do this so bad in kids or so bad in youth or pastors preaching in crazy clothes, I don't know how you can fix that one. <laughs> maybe God's tugging on your heart to get involved. Maybe God's tugging on your heart to do something about it. God wants to use you. You got a place in this church. God wants to use your gifts, all right? Now, let's be honest. To abide in Christ the way that John 15, 14 tells us to do doesn't happen by accident, right? And this is what, this is what I, I come to this because this is what Barnabas is teaching. This is what he's, he's encouraging these people to do, to abide in Christ. Look at this. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that, that it may bear more fruit. 
Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Is that easy to do? What John is teaching here. He's come to teach these people to abide in Christ. Is that, no way. To abide in Christ, well, that's pretty hard. It is. To abide consistently, to remain in Christ. That is difficult. Jesus even tells us in Luke 9, 23 that, that we have to live a life of denying ourselves. Look what he says. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Guess what? This is something that you have got to be disciplined. It's something that you learn and, and that you purpose each day to do. And that's what Barnabas was teaching these new believers. I'm focusing on this because that is what the church should do. I know it's much easier to focus on evangelism. I know it's fun to do these big, huge crusades and these big events that draws these big crowds and we preach Jesus and it's awesome to see all these people come up and check the box, yes to salvation. It's awesome. As a missionary, it made great newsletters. Oh man, we had, a, we had this, this uh, crusade and over 500 people said yes to Jesus. But you wanna know where it gets really tough? To disciple them. You know, it's not like we got them past the finish line when they come here and they say yes to Jesus. That's when the hard work really starts. That's what Barnabas is doing here. That is what you see in any healthy church, discipleship. It's tough. We should not have our 18-year-olds in the Assemblies of God going off to college and losing, losing their faith. That should not be happening. We should be discipling our children and our youth so that when they go off to a secular college, they are a light instead of being persuaded that Jesus doesn't exist. Discipleship is so important. Your kids need to know the Bible. Discipleship takes place the most, the, the, the best place, the best environment for discipleship is gonna be within the home. Come on, dads. It's our responsibility. We're called to disciple our kids. We're called to lead our families. Disciple your kids. Teach them God's word. We're gonna do our best here. But man, we can't do better than you in the home. So please, make it a priority. That's what Barnabas is doing. The church focused on it. It was a big deal. Abiding in Christ. Teaching people to abide in Christ. So he's serving there in Antioch. The, the discipline of discipleship begins to take form. And, and like I said, discipleship uh, I've said this before, discipleship really is the real metric for church growth. Yes, it is. <laughs> right, Enos? Come on. I said discipleship is the real metric for church growth. I mean, we could have a church running 5,000 people and maybe only like 400 disciples. Our spiritual transformation, our spiritual growth, that's the real metric for church growth. Verse 24 tells us that a large number of people were being added to the Lord as they became more grounded in the word. Their witness to the lost was growing and lost people were actually responding. See, that's what happens. That's what happens when somebody finds Jesus, when somebody's discipled. A disciple goes and does what? He makes disciples. See, somewhere along the line, church got away from God's blueprint for church growth and we got into this, let's, let's do all these different strategies to bring people in. But this is what the church is supposed to look like. When people ask me what my vision is for New Heights Church when it comes to growth, I always respond by saying, disciples who make disciples. That's my vision. This is how I believe we're gonna grow. And it might take longer. We might not see overnight growth. We might not get to experience microwave here. It's not gonna be like we nuke it, okay? And all of a sudden, we're, we're busting the seams. I want to see church growth by disciples who make disciples. Church is supposed to be a movement, supposed to be people with faith and action, and I look to the Bible as my blueprint. This, this is where I go. I love conferences, I love church growth books, but this you can't beat. This is where it's at. This is where the power lies. This is it. I'm gonna go to the book every single time. That's how we're gonna grow as a church. And I might need some help doing this. All right, I might need some Barnabases. I, I, I might need to have another guy who's willing to do the hard work of discipleship come along and help these people move a little bit deeper into their walk because we will definitely do what we can to get lost people in here so that lost people can accept Jesus. But then I need some Barnabases. I need some Barnabases, Barnabases to do some hard work. That is a hard word to say over and over. We're gonna grow through discipleship. And just so you know, Barnabas had some choices. 
He could have gone back to the church in Jerusalem and gotten some men from there. Sure, he could, have, he could have done that, but he didn't. I want you to notice this in our text. Instead, he goes and he finds Saul. The Bible doesn't tell us that God told him to do this. It just tells us that he did it. And I think this makes sense as a helper. Barnabas remembers Saul from their time together in Jerusalem. So he knows him. He trusts him. He knows that Saul's been set apart to be an apostle to the Gentiles. It's important to recognize the call of people or the call on people's life. You can be someone who encourages the call. You might be someone, last week I said, some people are gonna say, well, I'm called to sing, and then when you hear them sing, you're gonna be like, I don't think so. <laughs> you guys are gonna be used. You are, I'm telling you, you guys are gonna be used. You might see someone in the youth group and say, that person is called to teach. He has a gift to teach, or he's a leader, and you get to cultivate that call. You get to be a part of that, but you've gotta be like Barnabas. You gotta be willing to go out and find the Sauls, right? Where would Saul have been without Barnabas? You know, we got a bunch of Sauls and Peters and James in our church right now. They're sitting in this front row. What are we doing to cultivate those calls? Come on, get excited. There you go. <laughs> he knows Paul's calling and gifts would, would be really helpful in this very diverse environment in Antioch. And for the next year, verse 26 says, Saul and Barnabas taught in the church. Now let me help some of you this morning ease some of your personal anxiety, maybe even lift uh, a burden off of you today. I wanna tell you a truth that's crucial and that, that's this, if you're writing notes, write it down. Personal discipleship doesn't happen overnight. Some of us try to do the whole thing in one day, you just can't do it. <laughs> doesn't work that way. Personal discipleship doesn't happen overnight. It takes time, it takes commitment, it takes dedication. So ease some of that pressure off yourself. Stop trying to do the whole process in one day. And parents, remember this. Listen to me, moms and dads. Remember this with your kids. Discipleship does not happen overnight. <laughs> you will go gray as a mom or as a dad because uh, your kids will test your patience. But remember, just be faithful, be consistent. Discipleship doesn't take place overnight. Liam's gonna turn out just fine. <laughs> He's gonna make it, okay? All right. What we do know in the course of, of the year that they taught, and that might seem like a long time in some situations. I think in this situation it seems really fast, but this new church, these new believers, they're radically changing how their city looks, and we know that because of verse 26 and how it ends. It says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. In fact, look. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. All right, this is the turning point in Christianity, right here, because they were so different, and listen, they were so different from the culture that was around them that they didn't fit in to any of these pre-existing boxes, any of these where they set up these walls and segregated the city. They couldn't really put Christians in any of those boxes. Everybody stays in their own section, right? Here's yours, here's yours, no one blended together, no one crossed those boundaries, everybody stayed where they were supposed to, and these Christians were breaking all the rules. <laughs> they defied all the boxes as people were literally climbing over walls and crossing boundaries to meet together and to worship together, and the locals there didn't know what to call these people. They see these things happening. They see it gaining momentum and getting bigger and larger, and they didn't know what to call them. The community didn't know what box they fit into. And they didn't fit into a box. Listen, when you and, when you and I say yes to Jesus, we don't really fit into a box, except for the family of God. All of a sudden, we have this new identity. All of a sudden, we have this new purpose in our life, right? So these, these onlookers looked at how they were acting and how they were living, and I, they said, well, let's call them Christians. Again, it, it wasn't, a, it, it wasn't a, nice, a nice term of endearment here. They created this whole new classification of people. By the way, Jesus created a whole new humanity at the cross too, right? You understand that? I just said that to the Spanish fellow fellowship, I'm gonna say it to the English fellowship. When Jesus died on the cross, came back to life, he created a whole new humanity. Hadn't existed before like this. The merging of cultures and peoples from different parts of the world worshiping together like this had never happened. It didn't exist in the world. 
The church in Antioch, I want you to know, is our blueprint for what the church should look like. The book of Acts is giving us a picture, giving us a glimpse of what Jesus' kingdom is going to look like when it's fully consummated. When every nation and every tribe and every tongue is going to be worshiping together at his throne, it's gonna be an awesome day. And Antioch has given us a picture of what it looks like. Yes, that's so amazing. I want New Heights Church to look like this. Liz and I didn't come back from the mission field to pastor uh, a, a white Anglican church in suburbs in, of Cincinnati. No, man, we traveled from church to church while we itinerated, and we kept seeing something. Man, God is bringing the nations to America. This is crazy. My great-grandpa, who was a missionary, one of the first missionaries to China, and my grandpa and my dad, they, they would they would go crazy to see the opportunity that we have when it comes to fulfilling the mission of God. The places that we could not get missionaries into and we tried everything. We would teach them Arabic and all, Farsi and all these different languages and invest millions of dollars to get them over there only for five years later them to be discovered, their coffee shop shut down and they're being sent to another country. They've gotta relearn another language. How in the world are we gonna get the gospel in that place? And God is bringing all of these people into our backyard right now, right here in Fairfield, Ohio. I want I want us to be a church that looks like Antioch. I do. I want us to be a church that has people from every different country that are representing different cultures and different languages. I know it's a big vision. I serve a good, amazing, mighty, powerful God that can do this. I've got the Holy Spirit living within me. You've got the Holy Spirit living within you. And we've got God's mission to accomplish. It can be done. I want a church with many different cultures and languages who come together because as much as we have that separates us, and if we're not careful, we'll segregate us, we also have something greater that brings us together, right? Barnabas and Saul and the Antioch believers there, they model for us that to be a disciple of Jesus is to make disciples of Jesus from every culture and people group. Now question to consider as we're getting close to closing. The worship team can make their way back up. Question to consider here, is the life of Christ in you being multiplied, multiplied through you in your community? I'm gonna ask it again. Is the life of Christ in you being multiplied through you in your community? Yes. All right, good. Yeah, come on. Is the life of Jesus in you actually being multiplied through you and others? Is it making a difference with your neighbors, your family, your colleagues, fellow soccer moms, your, your bowling team? Is, is the life of Jesus being multi multiplied through you? An evangelist by the name of Dawson Trotman is known for asking this question. Men, where's your man? Women, where is your woman? He's asking, hey, show me the person that you've led to Jesus and who's now living faithfully for Jesus. Show me that person. I wanna know who that person is. In other words, show me the fruit of your life. I feel like that question is, is worth asking of ourselves today because the truth is that this life of Jesus that we have isn't meant to just remain in us. It's not meant to remain in us. We're supposed to do something with it. We're supposed to go and tell. The church here in Antioch is changing what personal discipleship looks like, and as a result of their reach and of Barnabas and Saul's building them up in their faith, they're also going to be a church that is extremely effective in ministry. They're gonna show us how the local church ministers and serves and cares for other people. Look with me now at the last few verses. Now in those, these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus, if, if you're a pregnant mom looking for a name, that's a good one, came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, and this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I love how this story ends. Such a beautiful way to end this passage because it ends with us getting to see full circle the work of the gospel in the life of this new local church. How they started off as pagans, then they heard the gospel, and from hearing the gospel, they became new believers. From there, they became active in sharing their faith. Then they grew in their understanding of the word of God, and now they're determined to show the fruit of their salvation through good works. It's beautiful. Now, this prophet from Jerusalem, he comes and tells about a famine that's going to hit, and, and this is something that you can read about in history books. Josephus even writes about how significant this famine 
famine was for years, especially in the region of Judea. And while most believers in Antioch would probably start stockpiling stuff for themselves, they had anything extra, they had any remainder, they would they'd probably, whatever they had extra they would give, send out as a relief to other people. These new disciples do something completely different. They do the exact opposite. They went into this spontaneous action of collecting goods and funds and relief to send ahead to the believers in Judea. <laughs> it brings up a good question. Does New Heights Church believe in the office of prophet? I have to, I have to at least address this because here we're reading about this. So I don't have a whole lot of time to get into this, but the short answer is that we, New Heights Church, we're an Assemblies of God church and we do not believe in the office of prophet, but we absolutely believe believe in the gift of prophecy. Now you can go to the Assemblies of God website and you can look into that further, but I'll say this, we need the gift of prophecy in the church today. I've experienced the gift of prophecy in my own life. I've never had it, but I've had other people receive the gift of prophecy and come and prophesy over my life, and I'm telling you, it is, we need it in the church. It's amazing, we absolutely believe it. In fact without embarrassing her, Deb Bach, she has the gift of prophecy in her life and she has come and prayed over me and prophesied over me and I'm telling you, it's like, how does she get into my mind to know these things? She doesn't, but she, she's got the gift of prophecy. So we, actually, we absolutely, 100% believe in the gift of prophecy. Paul, all throughout his letters, encourages all believers to do what? To desire, desire what? Especially the gift of prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14.1, for the person who prophesies does so for the strengthening, encouragement, and the comfort of others. That's what happens when somebody comes and has prophesied over my life. Now, like Peter's prophetic sermon, he says the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all who the Lord our God will call, Acts 2.39. Now, when it comes to predicting the future, here's what I would say. You don't need anybody to predict the future because you've got God's word, right? You've got God's word. It's all the future I need to know, by the way, right here. In fact, the book of Revelation says that Jesus is gonna come again and it's all gonna come out all right. Now, I happen to be a premillennial in my views concerning uh, the return of Jesus Christ, but the truth is that when somebody asks me whether I'm premillennial or uh, a millennial, uh, postmillennial or whatever, I always like to say this, I'm pan-millennial. <laughs> Nobody likes this. I got this from Jerry Vines, by the way. I'm, I'm a pan-millennial because I just believe everything's gonna pan out all right. I believe it's all gonna work out right. God's already put it in the Bible. Everything's gonna work out all right. One of these days, Jesus is gonna come again. Everybody that's born again and saved, he's gonna catch us up and we're gonna go to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb and the judgment seat of Christ and there's gonna be a tribulation on this earth. One of these days, he's gonna bring us back to this earth and we're gonna reign with him a thousand years. I'm not interested in, in knowing any more about the future than that. That's plenty enough for me. So we learn a couple things that this church did when it comes to ministry that affected their actions. First, what the disciples did in Antioch was selfless. Famine hadn't even started yet and these new believers were just determined to go ahead and get relief. Not stored up for themselves, but to send ahead to the believers in Judea. They were selfless. They demonstrated that for us. Others before self. That's what we're gonna be at New Heights Church. Others before self. Secondly, it was generous. Verse nine tells us that each of the disciples gave according to his ability, which means they no doubt were, were tapping, 29, sorry, tapping into some of their reserves and they had just enough faith and trust that God would take care of them if the famine reached up into Antioch. I love, I love just do something mentality here. Just do something. When, when all the, the crazy stuff was happening in Israel and we just happened to have Convoy of Hope, we were just gonna do something. Sometimes I, I don't like to set numbers, we're just gonna respond, we're just gonna do something. That should be our mentality as followers of Jesus Christ when we see crises going around the world. I don't know what I can do, but I'm gonna do something. I am going to do something, amen? We see that here in Antioch, I love it. This church knew they couldn't reach or, or, or feed or help everybody that was gonna be affected by the famine. They didn't let that stop them from doing something. They were committed to doing something. They weren't trying to do everything. And I think that's something that's notable for us today to keep in mind. We won't be able to do everything, but we can do something. 
And thirdly, their ministry was corporate. And this is huge for us today. The Antioch church was caring for other group of believers who were different from them culturally. Different from them when it came to their ethnicity. Different from them when it came to geography. Not even close to them. And it was probably real humbling for those Jewish believers to get aid and get support from the Gentiles. But isn't that a beautiful demonstration of God's love and unity in Jesus Christ? That both fellowships of the church belong to Jesus and that in Christ they were brother and sister and now you and I get to experience the joy of serving one another. And I've gone over my time, so we're gonna close right now. But I wanna close with one of our core values. We commission every member. We commission every member. Here's what that means. Every member is a minister and every minister has a ministry. Means every minister and every minister has a ministry. You are called to do something. And I want you to find that. If you don't know what that is, I want you to seek the Holy Spirit. I want the Holy Spirit to speak to you and tell you what it is that he has called you to do to accomplish for his kingdom. Because I'm telling you, no matter what your job is, no matter what you do, you are a child of the God and you have his call and his anointing and the Holy Spirit wants to fall upon you and the Holy Spirit wants to do incredible things through your life. And the things that we read about in the church in Antioch are the things we can experience today in Fairfield. So close with me. We're going to pray. Holy Spirit, fall on us afresh and anew. God, we need your Holy Spirit to come upon each and every one of us who calls you our Lord and Savior. And God, would you just fill us, fill us with your Holy Spirit, open doors and opportunities and give us a boldness when it comes to sharing our faith with others. And Lord, I know, I know you have called this church. When Pastor Hugh planted this church 60 years ago. He wanted to see a church that made Jesus famous in Cincinnati and around the world. And I'm so grateful that 60 years ago, Pastor Hugh had the faith to step out and do this. And I'm so thankful that I get to build upon something so incredible. But God, you are not done. You are doing a new thing. And so Holy Spirit, fall afresh on us now. Lord, my generation, we have stories. My, my dad and grandparents have stories of the Holy Spirit doing incredible things. But God, please fall new on us again so our kids can have those stories and those experiences. Use us, God, I pray. Holy Spirit, fall on us today. Break into our lives, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.